Good, uh, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, buenos dias, buenas tardes, buongiorno, guten tag, and uh, arigato and doyitashimashite. My name is Santiago and I am an alcoholic. It is an absolute uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, first and foremost, I want to thank uh, Mike C., my good friend and Brother in the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous, as all of you are my brothers and sisters in the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous, and all beings are my brothers and sisters. I love the, I love the, uh, the topic, love and tolerance of others is our code. Love first. I experienced a lot of love when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. Love and tolerance of others, tolerance of others. To me, the word tolerance uh, means to me, first and foremost, tolerance is a virtue. I think of it as a virtue. I think of it as, as the ability for one being towards another being or things or animals to be patient, to be understanding, and to be kind. And that's what I experienced when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I experienced a lot, a lot of love and a lot of tolerance. So before I get into my pitch, which will be about what happened and what it's like now, uh, what happened, what it was like, and what it's, what it's like now, uh, I'd like to say a few words. First uh, and foremost, it's it's really fun, well, not really fun, it's challenging to sit down and, and, and do this. Uh, but I wanted to tell you that when uh, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I was asked to go with, uh, with speakers to, their, to the meetings where they would speak for an hour or 50 minutes. And, and uh, every time I would go with them, I would end up speaking, not all the time, but a lot of the times, I would do what they call a short dog over here, which is a 10-minute pitch. And... Uh, and I was told whenever you talk more than five minutes at a meeting, particularly a speaker meeting, you be sure and wear a coat, which I'm doing, and uh, a tie, which I'm doing. And now I'm going to take my coat off uh, because I just think it's the right thing to do. And because I know that you're loving and, and you also are tolerant. And so there goes the coat. I'll leave the tie on as respect to my sponsor. Uh, one more thing before I get into my story, uh, and that is that uh, I want to read something to you. This is the uh, first edition of the 12 by 12, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. And uh, there's an inscription here, and the inscription reads, Dear Gerald, my little token of affection for all that you are to so many and to me in devotion, Bill Wilson, May 26, 1953. And William Hurd was considered in the United States uh, a mystic, a philosopher. Bertrand Russell said that he was one of the most intelligent men he'd ever met in his life and knew more about more things than anybody he knew. And Bill Hurd, was the spiritual advisor to my sponsor. So let me tell you what it was like. Uh, I'm looking at the clock here, so I, I'm thinking I'm gonna be done here by uh, 
maybe by 205 my time well this is what it was like <laughs> it was like being in a monty python movie i uh i was born drunk i'm pretty sure my mother god bless her she was wonderful uh my mother had seven children she had her first child when she was 14 and so she had children in 1924 27 28 29 33 36 and then me 1945 and so my mom said that when she got pregnant that the doctor told her the only way that i was going to live is if she stayed in bed and she said to me the only way i was going to stay in bed mijo mijo means my son the only way i'm going to stay in bed mijo is if i drink a bottle of wine every day and so she drank a bottle of wine every day and i think i got a little high every day as i was developing and so when i was born i think i was born feeling pretty good but i think i felt pretty bad once the alcohol stopped and uh so that's how my life started i grew up in a little town called anaheim uh it's actually a Spanish and German word. It's Ana for the Santa Ana River here in our county and Heim for home. So it was like the cottage by the river. It was, it was colonized by Germans and that's where I grew up. My mother and father came here to this country. Uh, my dad came here during the Mexican Revolution of 1910, 1920. And uh, that revolution was like Vietnam. It wasn't, it was just like Vietnam or any other terrible, uh, violent, brutal uh, activity that takes place in the country and, and is taking place all the time, it seems like. But that's where, they, that's where my father came from. And he was able to uh, read Spanish and write. My mother came also from Mexico. She came over around 1924, uh, I think. Or, yeah, 1924, where she had my, my, my sister. So I grew up, you know, in this, in this barrio, which is a, it's a village of, of, uh, of people. Most of them are refugees from the Revolutionary War. All of them speak Spanish. And uh, so when I grew up, my, my first language was Spanish. But the first word that I learned, uh, the first two words that I learned, very possibly were Nahuatl words, which is the indigenous language of the people, the native people in, uh, in Mexico. And the words were Tata and Guchipila. And Guchipila actually is a mispronunciation of the Spanish of a, of a god called Xochipili, who was the god of the flowers and songs. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of where, uh, that's, that's kind of how I grew up. I grew up in this environment. And uh, we lived in this house uh, by the time I was five, I thought I was, you know, very poor compared to other, other people's houses. We didn't have a shower or a bathtub. We had a, we had a toilet, thank God. And, but we lived well. And by, when I say we lived well is that my mother and father would go to Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles, and we would go to these theaters and see these great movies and dancers and mariachis. And, oh, it was, it was just incredible. Uh, I loved it. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a movie star. 
So by the time I was seven, I had my first drink. I had my first joint. I didn't smoke the whole joint. I think I took two or three hits off of it. And I got high. And, and, uh, and my big brother, uh, he was uh, a pachuco. And a pachuco, uh, it was just a bunch of kids who happened to be of Mexican descent. There was probably whites and blacks, maybe two, and other people who, who were pachucos. They wore these zoot suits. And, uh, and so he was, a, you know, he was a hip cat, and I wanted to be a hip cat. My other brother, Bob, we called him the walking library. He wanted to be a professor. So I had these two role models. And then my third brother was, he was just cool. We both wanted to be cool like Pete. So by the time I'm 11 years old, I am uh, smoking marijuana on a regular basis, um, drinking white satin wine once a week. And every time I drink, I get high, I get drunk, and I get violently ill. And that's, that's my story. <laughs> it's a sad story because I have this obsession of the mind that tells me I've got to drink. And then I have this allergy, this terrible allergy, which I sure, I'm sure it comes from that 50% of me, which is indigenous. I am of the Kashkan people from Uchipila. And the other half of me, who I hate is a Spaniard. So it's, it's a trip to have these two consciousness. And I'm growing up with this. And so on my 11th birthday, I go out with some friends and, you know, we used to dress up. We, were, we called ourselves Vato Locos, which means cool dudes. And we used to have this uniform and, and uh, we'd wear khakis and these sir guys shirts and we'd button them up and we'd, you know, we'd walk, man, like, orale, you know, with a lot, a lot of attitude. Or we'd strut, because you could call it strutting. And, but we were just kids, you know. I was 11, the oldest guy was 15, and we were drinking, and we were smoking pot, and we were breaking into people's homes, and we were getting caught, and we were getting arrested. And so now I'm 11 years old, and I'm locked up in a big jail, because I'm at the county seat of, our, of Orange County in Santana, and uh, the guys I'm with, they all get booked, they get processed, and they take off. They're taken to a juvenile institution where they will be there for a year. And I'm left in a tank. And I'm down there in that tank, and I'm still a little bit high, but little by little, that goes away. And it gets very dark. I could look up from the tank, and when the sun was out, I could see people walking across, and then it got black. And then I got scared. In fact, I got terrified. And I begged God with all my heart to please help me, get me out of here. And I promise you, I promise you, I will never do this again. I'll never do this again, dear Lord. And my prayer was answered. My sister came, picked me up. And uh, my mom was with her, and, they, and we drove back to Anaheim, which was about back then probably an hour and a half drive. It was, uh, there were no freeways back in those days, all orange groves. And we drove back to our little house, and my father was there, and, and uh, he didn't say anything to me, which scared me. And uh, he told my mom to, to feed me, and, and then uh, he told me, I'll, I'll see you in the morning.
And so I thought, you know, I got to get out of here before the morning. And I'd run away from home three or four times already and had been arrested for running away from home. You know, because I had all this stuff going I had all these ideas and, and, and an imagination that just wouldn't stop. And so anyway, I was going to run away. So that was my plan. You know, as soon as they all, all the lights went out and they went to sleep, I was going to run away. Uh, and so I fell asleep. No running away. And my dad woke me up and he had a really, he had big hands, a lot bigger than mine today. And, uh, he was a beautiful man. He was a beautiful man. He was a, he was a Kashkan, you know, probably 75% indigenous to this continent. And I love him so much. He's been gone a very long time, but he's with me right now. You know, he took me by his hands and he lifted me up. And uh, I thought, here it comes, you know, he's going to get the belt and I'm going to get wiped out here. And he walked me into the kitchen we just had two rooms a little kitchen and then the other room and he uh, told me to sit down on a chair and then he sat down and he looked right at me just looked right at me and in Spanish in Spanish he said my son you will never be picked up from jail again. And I will never, ever spank you again. You are on your own. You do what you want to do with your life. I am done with you. And then tears began to fall down his eyes. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, I did not know what to do. I was, I can't even explain the emotions I had. A part of me had this a feeling of hate. I just hated him. And another part of me was like, wow, that is cool, man. He's not going to hit me. I was very confused. But I'll tell you what happened. Is I never went to jail again till I became an adult. And he never spanked me again. And so my life went on and you know, at this time, my name is Jimmy, because nobody can say Santiago, not in, 19, not in 1945. <laughs> Most of my brothers went to, and sisters went to segregated Mexican schools. Back in those days, we couldn't swim with white people in the public pool. It's the way it was here. It wasn't that way when I went to elementary school. I got to go to school with the, the rest of the kids. So anyway, my life goes on. You know, event, you know what I learned and what I realized is, hey, I got to act like the rest of these kids. And the rest of these kids are all white. And uh, they're Italians, they're Polacks, they're Germans, they're Jews, they're God knows what, you know. But they're white. They're all considered white. And so I thought to myself, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn to act like them. So I practiced walking like them. I I. I I tried to improve my English. It, it, it you know, wasn't my first language. It wasn't easy for me uh, learning it. But I would look in the mirror and I'd, you know, I'd try my best to say shoe instead of give me the chew or church instead of I'm going to church because we have a CH in the Spanish language. And so that's what I did. 
And I did it well enough so that when I was in my senior year in high school, I was elected student body president, which means really you're one of the most popular kids in school. I got a number of drama awards uh, for, for acting. I, I always lettered and was a captain of, of our football team. And I, I was a, I ran a state championship in, uh, in track in the miles. I, I mean, I just, uh, I got citizenship awards. That's where I was when I graduated from high school. And when I graduated from high school, I was a full blown alcoholic. What I was able to do to the day I came to Alcoholics Anonymous was I was able to drink because once I took one, in fact, once I took one drink, the way it happened is this way for me, I would think about drinking and then I would just fantasize and get high just thinking about that first drink. And then I would drink and I would drink hard and I would drink fast and I would get as drunk as I possibly could and I would not stop till I passed out. But then I could stop for two or three days. And that's how I was able to get through high school, play sports, be in drama, be in politics. And so I went on to college. And uh, in college, I met my wife, the mother of my son, who I believe is, is here with us, my beloved son, Gabriel Santiago. And uh, you know, I, I met this woman and, and she was beautiful and she loved to dance and I loved to dance and she happened to be of Mexican descent and, you know, I'm of Mexican descent and her mom came from Mexico, my parents came from Mexico and, you know, one of the first things she said to me early in our, in that night that we met, that we danced all night is I think she called me a suato and a suato in Spanish means idiot. And so, yeah, I fell in love with her immediately. We had, uh, we had a child, we got pregnant, we got married, and I left for Vietnam when our daughter, Mika Estrada, uh, was born. She was a month old. And I went, uh, I was on a, a destroyer, and we went off to uh, the China Sea, uh, up, up, up off of the north, uh, northern Vietnam, and that's where we served. And, and nothing glorious happened. I just got drunk and almost died a couple of times, fell over the ship because I would get drunk and I'd walk around the ship at nighttime. I had access to all of the liquor on the ship. I had the keys to the, to the locker for, for all the booze, all the Cokes, uh, meaning, you know, pop, soda drinks. And, uh, you know, I made it through the Navy. I, I was even get, able to get a couple of promotions and I, Came back out, went to work for the probation department, and uh, I got arrested. I was at uh, some dear friend's uh, house, Marion and, and Emma Tompkins. And they, I've known Marion. She was my drama teacher uh, and had become my friend. And her and Emmett were very kind to me. And we were at their house, and they had a big bottle of Tanqueray. And I love, I love Tanqueray, so I drank as much as I could. My wife and I drove home and that night sometime I just walked out of the house and I had this, I think, I don't know if this actually happened, but this is how I remember it. I had this fantasy that there was a redhead woman in a house looking for me, you know, like looking out the window and saying, Santiago, where are you? And I mean, I was, you know, I was drunk and I'm looking in people's windows 
And eventually I see this kind of a redhead woman and another woman and I walk into their house. The door was open and they weren't expecting me. And so they just uh, kind of beat me up and kicked me out of the house. And I was on the grass on all fours when the police got there and arrested me and I, I went to jail. And eventually uh, all the charges were dismissed and, and uh, I was able to go on with my life. Uh, by this time, alcohol had become a problem in, in my marriage. I had, uh, I had let down my wife many times. And so what we did is I graduated from, from, uh, from college and I got a, uh, an offer to apply for a position at Washington State University. And it was a great position. It was a position as a uh, counseling psychologist. Uh, uh, and it would be, I would go there and I was going to develop a uh, bilingual uh, counseling program for uh, migrant uh, uh, workers and who were 100% at that time uh, people of Mexican Mexican ancestry. And so we moved to Washington. Our son was the baby and uh, my, no one could believe I was going to Washington that's in, uh, up in the Northwest. And so I went there and, uh, you know, of course, I, I it was a dream come true. You know, I'd grown up picking oranges with my father. My father was an orange picker. I, I believed at that time it was the 60s and 70s and, and, uh, and we were fighting to try to improve the educational opportunity for people of Mexican descent. We were fighting to try to get our history in the history books. We were fighting for a lot of things that, that we didn't have at that time. And so we marched and we demonstrated and, and did other things and, and, uh, and little by little we started to have those opportunities. And I was there with my wife and my son and my daughter right in the middle of all of that. And I, I, uh, I just got worse. I just drank more. I was able to finish my master's degree with straight A's, I mean, top grades. Uh, I, was, I spoke all over the Northwest and parts of the Southwest. I was on television. I, I produced a radio show. Uh, and I was crazy. I was absolutely insane. Because every time I thought about drinking, I would drink and then I could not stop. I had no defense, no defense after that first drink. I had to drink till I passed out. And so what happened eventually is that uh, we, my wife and I and our family had, we'd, we would drive down to California from, from Washington and we were at a family party and I do not know to this day why this happened, but it did happen and it was the beginning of my end of drinking and using. It was the beginning. For some reason, I spat on my wife's face and I do not know the reason that I did that, but I did. And I always share that in my story because it's the beginning of the end because I'm an alcoholic and I cannot predict what happens after I take the first drink. And what I've learned is I really can't predict what happens after I take any substance because I use a lot of other substances to try to actually not drink. But eventually I always ended up drinking because I started thinking about drinking. And then I started romanticizing 
drinking and then I drank and then it, then it happened. Well, my wife woke up one morning and she said to me, and she was crying. She was literally sobbing and she was able to catch her breath. And she, she said to me, she says, by that time I was Santiago. I, my name, I changed my name back to my father's name, which is the name that I was supposed to have. And uh, it was my given name by my, by my father. And so she said to me, I don't know if I love you anymore, but I know I don't respect you. And I know I want you away from me and from our kids. You're not safe. Something like that. Something like that. What she definitely said was, leave, get out of here. I don't want you here anymore. And, and I did. And I, I left. We just bought in a house. And, you know, she and the kids and her cousin moved into this, you know, this beautiful house was in the, out there in the wheat, wheat fields in Pullman, Washington. And I moved into a little basement apartment. Uh, and I begged, begged her to take me back. And she wouldn't. I, she just was not going to do that. And, uh, and so eventually what happened is, and this is where my story gets a little confusing for me because I don't remember too well because I was really, I believe now as I look back on it, that I was going in and out of psychotic episodes. I think that I was becoming delusional. And I think, I don't think, I know that I was having audio and visual hallucinations I remember once I was speaking at a university and, and I was speaking at a lot of different universities and on television, I was at, I was speaking at this university and uh, there's probably 500 people there, maybe, maybe more. And right in the middle of my talk, I just, I see this, this face, you know, forming out in the distance and it's, it's this face and it's the ugliest thing and it's, and it's coming right at me. And now it's right in front of me and, and its mouth is opening up. And I see these people out here that I'm talking to and I'm talking and then somehow or other, I just say, you know what, this would be a perfect time for all of you to just kind of close your eyes and think about how you can make this a better world. And then I ran off the stage and kept running and I ran and I ran for, I don't know how long, but I know I ran out of the town. I was in Colorado, Colorado. And I ran out of town till I got to a desert. And, uh, you know, and I was, I was in, absolute, in an absolute state of paranoia. So, how'd I get sober? This is how it happened. And again, this is not easy for me to share. It'll never be easy for me to share. I left my son. I left my son in a camper. We, he and I took a trip to Banff, Canada, and, uh, and we were returning, and I left him in our VW camper. I had a craving for a drink. I don't remember ever craving, like a physical craving. I remember having obsession to drink, but I never had a physical craving. But I did this day, this morning, and I left him in the van, and I went in, and I drank, and I drank. And I forgot I left him in the van. And I came back out and I remember him. And he, he was looking out the window. And the shame that I felt 
and the guilt that I felt would not fit in the Pacific Ocean. It would not fit in the Atlantic Ocean. And that was it. You know, I had to stop. I had to stop drinking, but I didn't know how. So I started asking around campus if anybody knew anything about alcoholism and to my colleagues. You know, they were, by this time I was University of Idaho and I was a, I was a director of student development. I was a professor in the Department of Education and I was writing my dissertation for my PhD and, and, uh, and I was, you know, I was doing, I was doing well that way. Uh, and so finally what happened is I, somebody said, well, you know, this guy over here, he knows, he, he knows about alcoholism. He's, in fact, he's an alcoholic. Why don't you go talk to him? So I went to talk to this guy, he was kind of a chubby little guy, you know, and uh, kind of red faced and blue eyes and, you know, happy guy. And I went up to him and I said, hi, man, my name's Santiago. And he goes, well, I know who you are. You're, 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 the, you're one of the profs in education. I go, yeah, yeah. And he, he says, yeah, I know you. And uh, I says, he said, how can I help you? And I said, well, you know, I'm interested uh, in alcoholism. I'm thinking about maybe um, writing an article on it. He says, oh, well, I said, he goes, I don't know a whole lot about alcoholism, you know, from a, from a research perspective. He goes, all I know is I'm an alcoholic and I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and Alcoholics Anonymous is a solution. It's a solution. The solution looking for, for people who have problems with alcohol. I said, oh, I see. I see. Well, well, thank you. And I walked away from him. And maybe six months later, I don't know how, how much longer. I was back in California. I had, I, had, uh, I had interviewed at Stanford to be a director there. And I was interviewing at UCI for another director's position. And uh, I, was on the, I was a finalist at Stanford. And, and, uh, and now I was at UCI. And I'd become a finalist at UCI. And I got drunk again. And that morning I called my aunt, Mitia Luz, who was my mom's older sister, and I started crying to her. And she just said, stop. She says, you should be ashamed of yourself. Don't say another word. You should be ashamed of yourself. You have a son and a daughter and you don't have a wife anymore because you're divorced. And you should be ashamed of yourself. And then she hung up the phone. And then I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I called Alcoholics Anonymous and they said, somebody will be there to pick you up, to take you to a meeting. And the man who picked me up was the perfect, the perfect man for me. I mean, absolutely. His name was Bill. He's passed away now. And he was my sponsor. He was my closest friend. In some ways, he was, he was like a dad. And we had a couple of things in common, Bill and I. He picked me up. He took me to a beginner's meeting at the Riverside Club in Newport Beach, California, where I was to meet people who would become my friends. Some of them might even be watching right now who were there when I walked into that meeting. And some of them were so instrumental. People like Tom L., people like Carrie uh, and Carrie's wife and others. There's so many people that, that were there. I don't know, Carrie actually wasn't there because <laughs> he was my first sponsee. So he got there maybe a year later or year and a half later. But anyway, I, I went to the meeting and uh, Bill said to me, all you have to do when you walk in there is 
Just say you're an alcoholic. Sit down, be still. Do the best that you can to look at the similarities. Accentuate the similarities. And don't pay attention to what isn't similar. And just do that. And so I did. And I got a big book. And uh, I heard the message. And then he took me to another meeting that, that evening, a Thursday eBell Club. Had a beginner's meeting and had a speaker's meeting. And again, the speaker who spoke was the perfect person for me. It was, her name was Cindy. She was finishing her PhD dissertation. And, uh, and it was great, you know. And, and what I heard, uh, and that was to become my home group later. But, but what I heard there was if you don't take the first drink, you don't have to worry about the second. You don't have to worry about the second if you don't take the first drink. Keep coming back. Make this First, it has to be the top of the list. It has to be number one. And keep coming back. Keep coming back. I loved it. I loved it. And I thought I'm never going to drink again. I got it. And I went back to Idaho. I had six more months to do there. And I got drunk again. And the way I got drunk is this way. And I only tell it because I think it's important. It's somebody in AA, another professor. <laughs> Talked to me after the meeting one day, and she, and she said, isn't AA wonderful? I go, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I like it. And she said, uh, isn't it great that we can smoke grass? And I said, well, I didn't know we could do that. She goes, oh, yeah, there's nothing in the big book about, about smoking grass. So I thought, wow, that's great. I think I'll just go out and buy myself a lid and uh, an ounce of grass. But instead, I bought a kilo. I bought a kilo because I thought I'm going to need a lot of grass not to drink. And, uh, and eventually what happened uh, is that I took the job at UCI and on my way home driving, I got wasted. I got wasted on whiskey and milk. I had read in the big book something about whiskey and milk. And I thought I never tried whiskey and milk. And so that's what I did. I stopped in a bar and bought, ordered a shot of whiskey and, with milk and then I ordered three shots with milk and, and then I ordered, uh, I took out a couple of six packs and, and next thing I know is I woke up uh, in the parking lot of Folsom State Penitentiary, which is a long, long way from where I stopped. I stopped, uh, I wasn't even in Portland yet. Uh, so I was in Oregon and I woke up in the parking lot of uh, Folsom State Penitentiary. So once again, I, picked, I called Alcoholics Anonymous and another man came to my hotel room and he uh, listened to me for hours. He was an older man, just like, just like Bill, probably this man was 55 or 65 years old and he listened to me patiently, loved me and listened. And then he said to me, he said, boy, you've had a lot of bad breaks. And, and I thought, yes, I have. I have had a lot of bad breaks. And then he said, was alcohol involved in any of these bad breaks? And for some reason, at that moment, at that instant, I had this moment of clarity, this incredible moment of clarity. And that was, I could not stay sober 
by myself. I could never stay sober by myself. So I went back to Newport Beach, hooked up with, with Bill, and I came to learn that what I really experienced when I said I cannot stay sober by myself, I cannot stay sober alone, what I had experienced is that I could not stay sober without knowing, without experiencing emotionally, cognitively, physically even, the presence of that spirit. That spirit that I had known once when I was very little, that spirit that I wanted, that my father spoke of, that it was in the earth, the spirit was in the earth, the spirit was in the wind, the spirit was in the sky, the spirit was everywhere, and the spirit was in us. I could not stay sober without knowing that spirit. And I came to know that spirit, to know it, like I know I got a big nose. You know, I came to know that spirit better and better in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I took the steps, every one of them, every one of them. And I did that fourth and fifth step two or three times uh, because my sponsor kept telling me, you know, that he didn't think it was, it was thorough enough for some reason. <coughs> Excuse me. So I did that. And uh, I've got about 15 minutes left here. I think or 20 minutes. So, you know, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I absolutely love it. And, and Alcoholics Anonymous loves me. And so Bill uh, moved to Washington and he suggested that, uh, you know, that I get a sponsor that lived here. And, and of course he would always be available to me. And he was, I talked to Bill at least once a week. <coughs> I'm sorry, excuse me. Drink some water. I talked to Bill at least once a week and I would go see him in Washington and, and uh, but I got a sponsor here. His name was Father Dave and uh, he also happened to be of Mexican descent. And so, you know, we shared that culture and we shared the language. It was his first language, it was my first language. And he and I, by that time, understood and, and could discuss, you know, intelligently the whole, the whole conquest uh, and the occupation and colonizations and, that took place in Mexico and what today is the Southwest that was part of Mexico and part of space. And before then it was part of the, it belonged to the, to the native people who took care of this land and this earth for us uh, and still continue to take care of this earth for us. Uh, and it was wonderful to have him as a, as a sponsor. Uh, but I, one thing that, 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 uh, that I hadn't done is I hadn't finished my dissertation. And, and so, I decided not to go back to Idaho and, and he uh, encouraged me to go to a university in San Diego and he paid for my first semester and, and, uh, and he never asked for anything back. You know, he was, he was, he was so loving and so kind to me. And eventually he moved to, uh, to Fresno and then the next person to sponsor me was, uh, was actually, actually, you know, I, wanna, I don't wanna forget this. Actually before Father Dave, I had a sponsor, his name was Kenny and, uh, and then he moved to, Idaho, to Montana, I think. But before he moved to Montana, he and I had had a falling out, a disagreement. Now at this point in my life, I could see that he was right and I was wrong. 
but uh, because of that disagreement, you know, uh, he ended the relationship, I think, or I did. It's not important who did, but then that's when I got Father Dave and then eventually Lynn Wilder. And today my sponsor is Patrick. Uh, but all those people, all those people, what they showed me was, and what they demonstrated, it's not so much as it is what they showed me. It's not what they told me. I've never really have learned a lot from people who tell me. And, uh, and you know, love and tolerance of others is our code. You know what that means to me and what I've learned and, 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 and what I'm learning. Uh, is that, you know, in meetings, sometimes there are things that I hear, there are tones that I hear, there are behaviors that I see. Uh, there's that, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen in meetings that I don't agree with. But, you know, I still believe with all my heart that I love those individuals and I try as hard as I can to listen uh, and, to, and try to understand, you know, where they're coming from, what, you know, and do the best that I can with that. And so in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've, I've come to this point where most of my life, uh, and really this started right when I met Bill, but it really became uh, an avocation. For some reason, all of my life, I've always, uh, because of my profession, uh, I've, always, I've, I've had an opportunity to travel all over the world and, and uh, and, I've, and especially Mexico that I love. I love Mexico so much. Uh, and uh, what I've learned in, in my traveling is that no matter where I go, the spirit is there. And no matter where I go, you know, and I've been very fortunate, I've been blessed to, to, to speak in Vienna and, and uh, in Spain and, and uh, I got to go to Oxford once and, and share and, and you know, all over the place, and 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 everywhere I go, the spirit is there. And the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous is to me, to me, the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous is pure love. It's infinite love, infinite. It absolutely has no beginning and no end. It's a manifestation of that love, and it's in me. And I believe it is me, and it, I believe it's in you and everything that lives. I believe it has a consciousness. I think it cares. That's what I think, and that's what I continue to foster. So what are the rewards? What are, what, what are, the, most, what are the promises that are most important to me that have come true and continue to come true? Well, first and foremost, for me, when I look at the promises, the most the most wonderful one was, <laughs> you know, that, that first one, right? If we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we'll be amazed. I was amazed by the time I got to the 10th step. I was amazed. And I had truly come to know a new freedom and a new happiness. I wish I could say I, I didn't regret the past and, and didn't want to shut the door on it, but I did regret the past. There were things that I did that, that I regretted. Uh, but, you know, I came to comprehend the word serenity and to know peace. And Bill taught me that one of the best ways to know peace, to become familiar with peace, like I'm familiar with my, 
son, Gabriel, and my, my daughter, Mika, and my wife, Kim, my beautiful, wonderful wife, who's just in the other room. She has 40 years of sobriety, the love of my life. I, I love her more every day. She's the best friend I've ever had in my life. And, uh, you know, and so, so I, I know peace. And what Bill accentuated and, and was prayer and meditation. And Gerald Hurd, as I said earlier, who knew Bill well, and, and I was very fortunate to, uh, to get funded to do research at the archives in, in New York and also at the archives in Stepping Stones where Bill and Lois lived on the relationship that Bill, uh, William Hurd and Bill had. And, and you know, it's, a lot of it's about prayer and meditation. And so that's what I have focused uh, my life on, part of my life, you know, is that is there must be, for me at any way, prayer and foremost, you know, prayer is, is, has different forms. You know, there's a form of, of sitting still and, and, and simply asking God's spirit to present itself. You know, let me, let me feel you. Let me, let me see you. And be still and be quiet and learn to be comfortable with that stillness. So I've dedicated my life to that. And with the help of, of friends, I, we were able to start a retreat 35 years ago and, and at a monastery uh, where I've done consulting. And, and, uh, and we go to this monastery and we've been doing it for 35 years and we pray and we meditate. And my wife and I sit still and, and we meditate and we try to practice the presence of that spirit as we know it and as we understand it. And the way I do it is I, I just, you know, I sit still. I don't move and, and I just try to focus on my breath. And sometimes I focus on, focus on, on love, serenity. And of course, my mind's going to jump around. It's going to start remembering things. It's going to start planning things. It's going to start you know doing all that stuff that's that's what the brain does but there's a higher power that higher power can bring that restlessness and that remembering and planning that higher power if, you, if i connect to it can bring it back to the center and for maybe five seconds maybe a minute sometimes it's quiet and that one breath becomes a second breath and the second breath becomes another breath and then it's just breathing and I'm just witnessing that breathing. And I make it my business to pray and have made it my business to pray. So I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe by, maybe by the first year I, I became conscious that it was important for me to pray for all those individuals in the world because they're always there. There's always, they're always there in the world and they don't have enough food and they don't have enough clothing. And they're in danger. They're being shot at. Or other terrible things are happening to them. It's always happening in the world. And as part of my training in my spiritual life, I, I make it my business to remember that every morning and every night. And to pray. Just to simply pray. And to understand that they are not disconnected from me. I am connected to everything that lives, whether I like it or not. 
I'm connected to everything in the universe. It's impossible for me not to be connected to everything in the universe. When I came here, I wasn't connected to anything. I was alone, I was unloved, and I was unwanted. And for 10 years into sobriety, I, I, I could barely feel other people's love. I could feel it in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I could feel it in the rooms, but you know, I didn't have to live with those people. I could barely feel it for my son and daughter. And I know they loved me. I could barely feel it from my wife, my brothers, my sisters. But it's been a long, certainly at least 33 years of my 43 years that I have felt love. And <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. So I'll tell you this, uh, these last two stories, and then we'll wrap it up here and people can ask questions. When I was working at Washington State University, I, uh, I used to go to a state penitentiary because my brother Pete, my oldest brother, had been to the penitentiary twice. I visited him the first time when I was seven years old. And I also failed to mention, and this is important, my brother Pete died of alcoholism when he was 50. And, uh, and that was terrible. And my brother Victor died of alcoholism when he was 49. And that, that took me to Al-Anon. By the, by the grace of God, after he died, Lynn W. encouraged me to become a member of Al-Anon, and I did. And I'm, I'm so grateful to the Al-Anon program. Uh, so anyway, I, I, <laughs> I used to go to this penitentiary, you know, and I would rap. Back then, they call it rapping. You know, I would talk about being a Chicano and, you know, how we were going to change the world and we we're going to get back our land and this and that. And, you know, you know I get into that, into that kind of rap and and uh and then one day i got a call from the state penitentiary from the warden uh of the penitentiary and saying that there was a situation at the prison and there was a prisoner who was refusing to eat and uh he wanted to talk to me and he wouldn't eat unless he talked to me and he was on death row and so uh you know i, I drove up there uh i was just finishing up the last part of a program that I was going to submit so that I could get prisoners, Chicano prisoners out early and to come to Washington state and matriculate there. And so anyway, I got to the prison. They take me through all these doors. I walk through the yard. They walk, get up in an elevator. We go to two or three more cell, you know, these barred doors and I'm on death row and death row is just cells and a wall. And I walked to the prisoner's uh, cell that was, calling for me. His name was, uh, his last name was uh, Cadena. I said, Orale Cadena, what's happening? And, uh, you know, in his accent, you know, what he said to me is he says, you know what, profe, the reason I want you to come here is because the vatos, they told me to bring you here because you got a problem. You know what I say? You come here and you're more loaded than we are. I mean, you know, you're going to get busted. And if you get busted, there'll be no program to get us out. Not me, because I'm here for life. But the other vatos, man, from Chicanos Unidos, they want you to stop, to stop it. You're drinking too much. You're getting, you're wasted, man. You're going you're gonna to lose the program. And so that was, a, that was an intervention that I didn't heed. I just stopped going back to Walla Walla State Penitentiary. And, uh, and then the other story I want to share with you is, um, 
<clears throat> I thank God so much that I got to live this long because the longer I live, I got to know my mother and my father in a way that I didn't know them when I was young. I left home when I was 16 and I never went back. I supported myself the rest of my life. Uh, I did go back later, you know, maybe four years later after I left home, maybe two years later, but I didn't right away. And my mother didn't want me to move out. My father said it was fine. Just don't ever come back here expecting to eat or have your mother wash your clothes. So I love my mother. I mean, I really, really loved her. You know, I was a baby, a real baby. <laughs> and her and I were buddies. You know, she was so tired for having all those kids. And, and so her and I were really buddies. And, and uh, you know, I would, I, I would uh, take her out to dinner. After I got sober, you know, I'd take her out to dinner just about every week and, or lunch and and so when I got my PhD, you know, I, I, I was really happy. And I told her, you know, mom, I got, you know, I got a PhD. I got a PhD. And, and my mom didn't speak English. She could say a few words, you know. She, and so she kind of says, she says, PhD? I said, yeah, yeah, PhD. I'm like a doctor. And then she says, uh, dinero? You make dinero? Which is money. I go, yeah, I make, I make some money. She goes, oh, good. So, so anyway, I, you know, we finish our lunch. We get out of the out of the restaurant, we get in the car and we're sitting in my little VW. And uh, she goes, oh, mijo, you know what? I need some chones. Now, chones is short for calzones, which means in English, underwear. So it's like panties. She goes, I need some chones. Now, my mom's about five foot tall. You know, she's pretty, pretty wide. <laughs> and so I go, sure, mom, I'll buy you all the chones you want and I drove to the store I parked right in front of the store and my mom goes well you go in and buy them for me in Spanish of course but you go in and buy the chones for me and I go mom I you know I don't know what what size you wear she goes well I don't neither she goes I just look at them and I and I and I buy them and I said well how, how am I going to buy them for you she said bring them out here and show them to me she says you know you can do that so I went in the store, I found a sales lady, I told her what my mom wanted, and you know, I got these big chones, and I walked out there, and I'm showing them to her, they're almost as wide as the window, and she starts laughing. I mean, she's laughing. I look at her, I go, what are you laughing at? And she says, in English, her best English, right? She says, so you got a PhD, huh, stupid? And uh, <laughs> I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh at that time. But my mom, you know, my mom was just incredible. She was incredible. You know, she couldn't read. She couldn't write. She, uh, she was the strongest woman I ever met in my life. And because of that, every woman that I have been close to has been a strong woman. I love women. I defend them. And I, my, my, my wife is the uh, I don't even know how to say it. She, she fights for women's rights and put it that way. And, uh, and I'm so happy and so grateful again to Mike C and, and to Pax uh, for letting me share my experience, strength and hope with you. You know, you're new, welcome. Uh, somebody will find you or you will find somebody. And, and uh, if they're sober, they will share with you probably. And that's what happened to me. Somebody will share with you how to take these steps, how to understand how important the traditions are to us, 
the traditions are so important to us and how important it is to be of service. So I'll end with this. Uh, it's, a, it's something a good friend of mine used to say. He's still a good friend of mine, even though his spirit has left his body. Is why don't we take another 24 hours together and stay sober together? Thank you very much. I'll turn it back to you, leader. Santiago, my goodness, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> what You're welcome. a chair. The spirit of AA, that, that, that's all encompassing, that, that love, 